that if you would, take your Bibles and open up with me to 2 Kings chapter 19. Mm-mm. Lost my video. 2 Kings chapter 19. Let's see if we can get it back up. There we go. So, um, you know, First and Second Kings are part of the Old Testament history books. And um, we're in what is a pretty bleak segment of Israel's history right now. Now, Kings doesn't start that way. Kings really starts during one of the high points of Israel's history because the great King David has just died in First Kings. And when David dies, Solomon becomes king. And so it's, it's, it's during Solomon's reign that Israel is the most prosperous that it will, will ever be. It's during Solomon's reign that the borders of Israel are expanded to a point that they've never been before. So they don't have any enemies that are threatening them. The economy is booming. Everything's great when First Kings begins. But by the time we're coming toward the end of Second Kings, the nation has severely deteriorated. And the reason for that is they have so persistently turned away from God and they have so um, strenuously clung to their idols that God has finally begun to judge his people. And he is judging them at the hands of the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire is the, the dominant superpower of the day, and God has raised them up, and they have begun to afflict God's people. In fact, by this point in the story, you'll remember the northern kingdom has already fallen. The, the northern kingdom was most of the territory of Israel. The northern kingdom was most of the people of Israel. It's 10 of the 12 tribes. So the larger portion of Israel's territory, the larger portion of Israel's people have already been conquered. The land has already been taken over. The people have already been hauled off, taken as exiles into Assyrian territory. So as we're in 2 Kings 19, all that's left of the nation of Israel is a little sliver of land. I tried to describe it a few weeks ago to you. I'll describe it this way tonight. The nation of Judah at this point, if you think of Ware County going east, so Ware County, think Brantley County, Charlton, uh, Camden, Glen. So Ware County east, that's about the size of the whole nation of Judah at this point. So you're talking about five little counties in southeast Georgia is about the same square miles wise of what the entire nation of Judah was. So when we call it the kingdom of Judah, we're using that term very loosely. It's not much, it wouldn't even fit the terms of being a state. There are no states that small in the U.S. So we're talking about a little sliver of territory is all that they control. And the problem is the Assyrian Empire that's already conquered the north has now set its sights on the south. Now, you remember the good news is that there is a good king on the throne of the south right now. There's a king named Hezekiah that God has raised up. Hezekiah, we're told, is a king like David. Okay, that is glowing terms in the Old Testament. On top of that, we're told that no king trusted in the Lord like Hezekiah. So this is a king who has a tenacious faith in God, and he has shown his faith. One of the main ways, he has violently attacked idolatry in the land. He has cut down all of their idolatrous images. He's one of the few kings who was willing to actually start removing all of their personal high places. So he goes on the assault against idolatry, but that's just the negative side of it. So Hezekiah is committed to the Lord. Negatively, he tries to remove the idolatry. What does he do on the positive side? Well, we get several chapters about Hezekiah in the book of Second Chronicles. 
And what we're told there is that Hezekiah was just as committed to restoring the true worship of God. Listen to a few of these verses from 2 Chronicles, starting in verse 3 of chapter 29. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now just pause for a minute. The fact that Hezekiah becomes king and one of the first things he does is he opens the doors of the temple. What does that imply was the condition of the temple before this? That the doors of the temple had been closed. That under the reign of the prior king, King Ahaz, the temple in Jerusalem had basically been shut down. Keep going, verse 4. And then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. So what's happened in the temple? What happens in your house if you have a shed or a room that's not used for anything significant? What ends up going into that room? All the junk. So what's happened to the temple while they're not really using the temple to worship God? It has gotten loaded up with rubbish. There's all this junk in the temple. So he gives the command to the Levites, get the temple cleaned out so we can use it for worship. Verse 6, for our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They've also shut up the doors of the vestibule put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Do you get what I was saying? It's like they've shut down the temple. There is no true worship going on in the temple when Hezekiah becomes king. Uh, in addition to that, we find out in 2 Chronicles 30, the people of Israel have not observed the Passover for years. Now remember, that's a festival that God had, uh, had ordered them that they were supposed to observe annually as this reminder of the way that God had miraculously rescued them from Egypt, and yet they've gone years without observing Passover. So I'm, I'm just making the point, um, 2 Kings highlights the way that Hezekiah goes on the attack against idolatry. 2 Chronicles goes in the other direction. It shows us how he's not just trying to get out idolatry, he is trying to restore the worship of God to its rightful place in Israel. So this, this is a good king. And one of the things that he does as a good king is he decides that God's people do not need to be under the thumb of a pagan emperor anymore. So he decides they're not gonna keep serving the Assyrian Empire. He forms a little coalition of nations. They rebel against Assyria. But what ends up happening with that? The Assyrian king decides he's not going to put up with it. And so he marches south and he crushes every nation that's part of this coalition. He wipes out every one of these rebellious nations and then he turns his sights on the nation of Judah. He starts marching into Judah and every single fortified city begins to fall like dominoes as the Assyrian army marches through. And we saw last week that it's when the Assyrian army got to the second largest city, the city of Lachish. When Lachish fell, that's when King Hezekiah started getting a little bit fearful. And this, this king, who is known for his great faith, his faith for a moment got a little bit wobbly. And Hezekiah decided that he needed to do whatever it would take to somehow reach a truce with Assyria. So he offered to pay money. And Assyria accepted. They demanded a huge sum of money be paid 
for them to turn away. And so where did Hezekiah get the money? His own temple. This temple that he's just restored, he goes in and he takes every flake of gold that he can find and he sends it off to Assyria as a compromise and does his compromise work. No, they take the money and they decide that they're going to go ahead and attack Jerusalem anyway. So the Assyrian army continues to close in. And eventually, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, sends officials. Basically, he's sending them to negotiate terms of surrender. He sends these three officials, and do you remember the title of the spokesman of the Assyrian Empire? The Rabshakeh is the, the spokesman. And he is a world-class trash talker. And he shows up at the walls of the city, and his main goal is to completely decimate the morale. And so he gives this big speech in Hebrew right outside the gates of Jerusalem, letting the people know that they better not trust in Egypt because Egypt's not going to help. And they better not trust in their army because their army's puny. And they better not trust in their king because their king's a fool. And they better not trust in their God because even their God can't get them out of this. You remember he even gives that little history lesson where he says, hey, every nation that we've, that we've wiped out, they had a God too. They thought their God would help them. None of those gods helped. So don't think your God's going to be any different. And that's where the, the meeting ended. So the meeting last week in chapter 18, it basically ends and it looks like the nation of Israel, Jerusalem really, has two choices. They can either fight and get pulverized by a much larger army or they can surrender and get hauled off into captivity. Neither one of those choices is very appealing. So that's where we left off. Let's see what happens this week. So if your Bible's open to 2 Kings chapter 19, we're going to look at the response of King Hezekiah to that meeting. 2 Kings 19, starting in verse 1. 2 Kings 19, verse 1 says, And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, he hears the report of that meeting that had just happened, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Now let's pause for just a minute. What's happening here when he does all of this stuff? Tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, what is all that an expression of? Extreme distress. This is a sign of mourning, really. This is the sort of thing that you would do in this day if you had a family member die. If you had a close family member die, you would tear your clothes and you would put on sackcloth. So it's just highlighting how distressed Hezekiah is. He was clearly hoping that this meeting would somehow end on a, on a positive note, and it has not ended on a positive note. And, and one more thing, you often see tearing clothes and wearing sackcloth in the Bible also associated with repentance. So there could be an element of repentance here. It could be that Hezekiah is acknowledging his former compromise. He's acknowledging the lack of faith that he showed. And so what does he do in this moment? Well, he goes into the house of the Lord. Now, that's more striking if you'll remember what his father, King Ahaz, had done when Assyria started closing in. When Assyria closed in under his reign, he just completely handed himself over to Assyria. He turned away from Yahweh. He pledged his loyalty to the king of Assyria. He incorporated Assyrian worship. So he was willing to turn away from God if he thought it would save his skin. Hezekiah, though, goes in the other direction. 
Now the vices are beginning to close in on Hezekiah and it's like it sobers him up. This man who had compromised, this man whose faith had gotten wobbly, now Hezekiah, instead of pulling away, he presses into the Lord. In verse 2, then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priest, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. Now we're, gonna, we're not going to stop this much the whole time, but just one other thing to highlight. Notice, he gets the, the priest and the officials to wear sackcloth too. But notice, this is one of the few times uh, in First and Second Kings where you have the priests, the prophet, and the king who, who are all in alignment with each other. Okay, most of the time in First and Second Kings, you have at least one of those who's not quite in accord with the others. But now we have Hezekiah the king, the priest, and Isaiah the prophet who, who are all on the same terms of what needs to happen. Now, why is he sending them to see Isaiah? What's his hopes? I, this is the prophet Isaiah who has a, a book in the Bible. What's he hoping to get from Isaiah? Instructions. He needs, he's heard what the Assyrians say, but he, need, he needs now to hear what God has to say. So he's hoping he can get some word from God that will give him some hope in this situation. So here's what happens, verse 3. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. You, you get this proverb. This apparently was a fairly frequently used proverb in this day. What's he comparing their condition to? He's comparing it to a woman who has gone into labor but can't give birth. So she has been laboring for hours and maybe for days to the point that now she is dehydrated and she is exhausted. She has no strength left to actually deliver the baby. So if you have a mom who is pregnant and exhausted so that she can't deliver, what's going to happen to the mom and the baby? This is bleak. They're both going to die. So this is, this, is, this is Hezekiah saying, we don't have the, the strength and we don't have the resources to meet this need. So he's just being as blunt as he can with Isaiah. Verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God will heal, hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that's left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Okay, just stop there for a minute. So did you notice what Hezekiah highlighted that the Rabshakeh had done? He doesn't just highlight that the Rabshakeh had insulted him or that the Rabshakeh had insulted the army. What does he highlight in that? The Rabshakeh, he reproached the living God. What's he pointing out to God? It's like he's saying, Lord, did you hear what he said about you? This it makes you think of David. You remember when David comes to the army and Goliath's out there in the, the valley and David goes, are we going to let him blaspheme the name of God? think he's crossed a line here and you know what happens with Goliath so that's the same thing he's saying here is Lord that he's not just insulting us here he's insulting you here and so they're laying this problem out to Isaiah to see if God is willing to help and here's what Isaiah says verses 6 and 7 and Isaiah said to them thus you shall say to your master thus says the Lord do not be afraid of the words which you have heard 
with which the servants of the king of Assyria, notice God noticed it, the words with which they have blasphemed me. Surely I'll send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now, there's a prophecy in verse 7, but before we get to the prophecy, what is the very first thing that God says to them through Isaiah? It's one of the most frequently given commands in the Bible, right? Do not be afraid. Why was that such an important command at this moment? Do you remember from last week? Why was it that King Hezekiah's faith had buckled a little bit? Because of fear. Fear is regularly presented in the Bible as the great enemy of faith. So what are the things that we're tempted to be afraid of? You could spend all night on that, couldn't you? Think of Proverbs saying, the fear of man is a snare. I mean, one of the greatest fears is man. What is it about man that we fear? Okay. Their acceptance, their opinion of us. Jesus, the, the way Jesus says it is don't fear what man can do to you. Don't fear those who can kill your body. Fear him who can kill your body and cast your soul into hell. We fear those who can harm our bodies. We fear death. We fear the unknown. We fear uncertainty. We fear a million things. And fear erodes faith. So the first thing that, that the Lord says to him is do not be afraid. And then God, it's real straightforward, very simple. He gives two in verse 7, two direct prophecies. What are the two prophecies? Number one, God says that there's going to come a rumor to the Assyrians, and because of the rumor, they're going to leave and go back home. That's the first part. And then what's the second part? The second prophecy is that the king of Assyria is going to die by the sword in his home country. Now, what does it mean to die by the sword? This is not going to be natural causes, that he's going to die a violent death back home. Okay, so, so God's encouragement is very simple. Don't be afraid. I'm going to have Assyria return home, and I'm going to have the king of Assyria die in his home country. That's the first part of this. All right, keep reading.